Hello, guys, and welcome back to another episode of TNT Truth Against Tradition. And uh, I'm your host, Joe. And I am the co-host, Sergi. And today we're going to be talking a little bit on the historical side of the the charismatic movement. Um, so this is going to be a little bit of a history-rich podcast. We're going to be going into um, the history, I guess, the definitions of what these words mean. You know, charismatic. Um, continuationist and stuff like that and a little bit of the history we're going to have probably three episodes on this we're going to start with two of them in terms of the actual direct history and then the third one would probably be like an application what it means to us today we'll see there's just a lot of information to cover so getting right into it when people say charismatic the russian popular word is charismate yeah. You know, Harismat. Oh, on Harismat. He's a he's a charismatic. If you clap, definitely charismatic. Yeah, if you clap, you're you're charismatic. Like Joey. Um if uh, yeah, if you if you clap or if you um if you dance while you sing in the middle of church, stuff like like these kind of um It's very specific, I'd say. Like yeah. I, I guess you could um sum it up into like too much movement or like ecstatic ecstatic yeah they're too like, ecstatic there you go yeah, okay that's, that, that, that's uh, the word so people that are over ecstatic yeah. they're, they're a little bit too uh, flashy with their their worship and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, that would be uh, charismatic in the Slavic term so um, uh, it in the actual historical sense or the actual true meaning of the word that's not the case it's kind of ironic it's like saying that uh, you know it's like saying that uh, we identify as you know we identify as Russians and you identify as Moldovians, you know, and those guys over there, they're the Slavic people. That's basically what's happening. Charismatic Pentecostals are charismatic. In fact, the charismatic, the actual definition, or let's just say the actual, yeah, the actual true definition of charismatic is people who put an emphasis on the Holy Spirit and its gifts. And specifically, um, they put an emphasis specifically on the apostolic gifts. Uh, the biblical term we call we call it's not a biblical term but we give it we coin it apostolic gifts or the gifts that the Holy Spirit uh, or essentially prophetic gifts like speaking in tongues is a prophetic gift technically speaking because God is talking through the person prophecy and healing is is an apostolic gift or it's not prophetic but it's an apostolic it means that it's something ab- above the norm it's truly miraculous hmm. uh, those are called the um, the um, charismatic gifts hence the word charismatic. So, and the charismatics people, they're essentially, they, they identify as believers who put an emphasis on the apostolic gifts and to seek them out. That is a charismatic. So if you're in, if you're in any denomination, it doesn't matter. You can be a Baptist, you can be, uh, um, you can be a Methodist, uh, you can even be uh, a Protestant to some degree. But if you believe in the apostolic gifts, that they're active today and they should be sought out, you're a charismatic. No matter how you look at it, you you identify as a charismatic. It's just a title given to you. It's like saying that you're a Slavic person. Hmm. Russians, Moldovians, Romanians, they're all Slavic, right? But Russians are Russians, Moldovians are Moldovians, and so on. So charismatic are people in those different denominations that that believe in the, the gifts are still active, the apostolic gifts. However, the charismatic movement in and of itself is Pentecostalism, uh, specifically, that's kind of its 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 child, Pentecostalism, and then we have the um, uh, the New Apostolic Reformation. They're technically Pentecostals. They would they would say that's our father movement, but the Pentecostal specifically, some Baptist and some Methodist, that is the Pentecost or the Charismatic movement. So when we say Charismatic, we mean the people that believe in the gifts, the continuation of the gifts. 
there there are subcategories of charismatics, um, like continuationists and restorationists, but we'll go into that a little bit later. Specific, what's really important about the charismatic movement is the history. That's where it really, the theology is one thing, but the history is where it's really important. Um, as most people are aware, we're both cessationists. Um, and that's another word we're going to dig into later. We don't call it, we are not categorized as charismatic. So we're not, we're not part of the Pentecostal movement. Um, and uh, we don't agree with the points that they make. Because that, that's kind of the main, main factor is that, that belief in the gifts yeah. that we grew up with. Yeah. For me, um, I'm more so like in the in-between, but definitely leaning a lot more towards um, the sensationist side. Um, just based on like simple, I guess you could not necessarily like, you could call it just simple facts. Um, but based on, I don't want to bring up like my own experiences because we can't live our life based on our own experiences. But um, as in, according to truth, you know, that stuff that's in the scripture and the points made. So, um, yeah, for me, I'm definitely leaning more towards the sensationist. Oh, bro, you're a traitor. And so, I mean, the thing is, we we can, here's the confusion. People, a lot of people take it to the extreme and say, well, if you're a cessationist, which I am, I believe in the ceasing of the apostolic gifts. And we'll get into the definition of cessationism later. But I don't believe in the charismatic movement. Mm-hmm. Can I still be a brother with charismatics? 100%. As long as the underlining doctrines are not lost, namely uh, justification, sanctification, the gospel, uh, you know, soteriology, essentially the, 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 the sacrifice of Christ, all these things, as long as they're still solid and they're mm-hmm. taught biblically, then we're still brothers in faith. You're yeah. saved, I'm saved, and so on. We can still talk. But when it comes down to the charismatic gifts specifically this is where we have to divide in fact i i take it a bit further i say this is kind of like a uh you know it's almost like it's a crutch it's like a crutch for people you know it's it's unnecessarily there and there's really no need for it but people kind of fall back on it for some reason to kind of lean on the crutch it's unnecessary and basically the people are crippling themselves by believing in this not like they're hurting their salvation no it's just kind of like a crutch they fall back on that's unnecessarily there the person's healthy they have all the core doctrines figured out if they truly believe in the proper do- or the par- proper core doctrines it's specifically what pertains to the holy spirit if the holy spirit is misrepresented then there's huge aspects of the believer's life their walk with christ that's basically um, unnecessarily mangled it, like I said, it doesn't affect salvation per se. Some people take to the extreme where it does affect salvation. But majority of the case, the majority of the charismatics don't have that problem. I'm talking about the Slavic community, our Slavic community. But if you, and we're going to talk about the different waves or the different movements of the, of the charismatic movement, the th- three waves specifically. We'll get into each one and their history. But what's very important to understand, the Slavic movement for the most part is more conservative. So they have the core doctrines pretty well down. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've got them down pretty well for the most part. But believe it or not, in our in the, in the church that we, we we actively go to now, there are people that have a misunderstanding of justification because of the mangling of this portion of scripture. Because of the mangling of this portion of scripture, these people struggle with justification. And as you're probably aware, in scripture, Apostle Paul actually clarifies about you know discernment and so on. 
If we misunderstand justification, we're on very thin ice. In fact, some people go as far as to say we're not saved. If we misunderstood justification, it doesn't matter how much love we have for God. If we misunderstand Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have no salvation. Yeah. Because the argument goes, it goes both ways. You know, it really does go both ways. When people say that, um, you know, that person has a deep love for God, therefore he must be fine. You've heard that before, right? Well, I mean, if they misunderstood, they're okay, right? Yeah, they they almost have. Actually, that's something that I personally struggled with. Just like a side topic is like the fact of like, just because somebody like externally kind of like shows a zeal, in a sense, and like, oh, you know, like they're saved in that sort of like, they give you that automatic like, oh, he must be saved just because, I guess they show a zeal. Yeah, in, in yeah, and and that's kind of that's kind of the issue. Um, Muslims are very. There's a. I know. Oh. I, I know a lot of devout Muslims. Are they saved? Absolutely not. Yeah, but they're extremely zealous. I mean, they literally far more blow themselves us. up. Like well, th- for... those yeah, those are the jihadis. But that's well, okay. Yeah, thank you for. But but no, but that's 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 actually funny. You should say that's the true version of Islam, and I study Islam as well. But that's not the point. Um, they are. Well, specify why you study Islam, because like, you threw that out there, and people are like, "Wait a second, he's a heretic. He's cessationist and Islamic." Oh, you caught me. Um, it's a prerequisite. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, so I study Islam because I bumped into a Muslim at work. And uh, I got I, I I've I basically was very curious about it to begin with, but I really had no reason to dig into it, so I didn't. Well, I bumped into a Muslim at work, and we had good talks, and he seemed like a really nice guy. And I wanted to figure out what makes them tick. Obviously, we have the truth, right? Yeah. So it was kind of one-sided when I went in to begin with. But as I dug deeper into their religion, their very very legalistic man-made religion. In fact, it's so sad. The fact that they're so devout in a false religion, they're not saved. They're not saved whatsoever. And they have a form of Jesus, by the way, named Esau. And uh, it's very sad. It's very, very sad. Um, but I studied it for him to see if I can sh- you know, share the gospel. But first, I got to dismantle this cult mentality in his brain. It's really a giant cult. It's the biggest yeah. cult in the world. It really is. So I wanted to dismantle it and then present the gospel. And I'm still working with him now. We're still talking every now and again, but we don't work together anymore. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm still sharing the gospel as much as I can. But the point is, I studied it for him because there's no way I can, I I cannot challenge somebody about anything without learning what makes them tick, right? And that's what we should always do in all things. I can't just run to an atheist and be like, oh, you're lost, whatever this and that, without understanding what's going through their brain. Yeah. You know, sharing, uh, sharing the gospel, that's different. That's totally different. But when it comes down to trying to debate them and everything, you can't just go there blindly, especially with this. But my point is, devout people do exist out there. Does that mean they're saved? No. That's not the, the core factor to salvation whatsoever. It's the gospel it's the it's the gospel message. And if I'm if I tarnish the gospel message or I twist it or I misunderstand, I'm not saved. And that's unfortunate. It really is. But that's the reality of it. In fact actually feelings have almost absolute they actually have nothing to do with salvation. They really don't. No, it doesn't matter how much touchy feely I can get, that does not save me. Yeah, that's true. It's all the, the scripture is everything that's necessary for salvation. Once you dig into scripture and you start understanding what the gospel message truly is, what Christ was truly trying to share, you have a better understanding. And the gifts themselves are slowly kind of they they present themselves as a historical um, they were a historical tool for the apostles, and we'll dig into that later as well. But what's important is understanding what's actually happening in history and where things got messed up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can jump straight into it. 
that is essentially charismatic. That's what the, that's what charismatics. That's what we, we mean by charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's charismatic gifts and everything, but specifically the charismatic movement is the Pentecostal movement. Essentially, people that believe in the continuation or the restoration of the gifts. And we'll explain that a little bit later. Okay. But essentially, there were three major waves of the charismatic movement, and um, the very first wave that everyone that we Slavic people are very familiar with is the Pentecostal movement, or they call it classic Pentecostalism, or at least I coin, you know, at least I call it that classic Pentecostalism. This was the first wave, and this started in the 1900s. So this was uh, the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, or the turn of the 20th century. Um, uh, this started with uh, two gentlemen, specifically with actually what people don't really understand. They they always they always go back to Charles Fox Parham was a gentleman from Topeka, Kansas, I believe, is where he started his Bethel Bible School. And it was it was genuinely heretical. It really was heretical. He actually had very, very, very bad teachings. Um, he even considered, he considered himself, um, uh, what's it called? He considered himself the prophet Elijah, but that's something we can talk about a little bit later. But um, uh, so Charles Fox Parham in Topeka, Kansas, opened his Bethel Bible School, did his thing. And that's when supposedly, I believe it was January 1st, 1901, uh, the very beginning of the 20th century. Um, Agnes Osman was one of the girls there. They were, he left them with a challenge or he left them with this, um, this, this request, I guess, to look into the spiritual gifts. There's actually a backstory to that, but let's just say for the sake of making things simple, he left them with that challenge to talk about the spiritual gifts and he left for a little bit with some of his students to go to another place to learn about these in more further detail, which is the backstory. Um, when he came back, it was the end of the 19, 1900, the year 1900 was the end. He basically showed up. They read through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, and they concluded that the spiritual gifts were available today, and they wanted to have that for them. So they prayed over, you know, they prayed over it. And so the, I think the morning of 1901, January 1st, 1901, the turn of the century, uh, the, a year later, um, Agnes Osmond asked Charles Fox Parham, their teacher, to pray over her. Mm-hmm. And he did, and supposedly she went into this frenzy, and then she started speaking Chinese, Mandarin or something. And she spoke, she couldn't talk in any other language for two days straight, apparently. She was going through the spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, spiritual high or whatever. And she was able to write in Chinese as well, apparently. There was not only spiritual tongues, but also spiritual writing, supposedly, which obviously is not biblical because we have no evidence of, no talk yeah. of that ever. But let's just say that for them that was true. And um, and this is historical. Anyone can look this up. It's very simple. You know, they can look up Agnes Osman and Charles Fox Parham. But anyway, she apparently wrote in Chinese. And if you look at the pictures, you'll absolutely laugh because it's basically, you know, tic-tac boxes and just... The thing is, no one was exposed to Chinese. They just knew of Chinese, right? But no one was exposed to it. Like we, we have the internet today. We, we can, we know what Chinese looks like. You know, yeah. we know what Mandarin looks like. We know what these languages look like. She didn't know, so to her, that was obviously Chinese. And so it was blasted. Um, it was blasted on the local post and and, and news, you know, news articles written and everything. And and Charles Fox Parham came out and he made it all official that. There's absolutely no need to train missionaries for missionary work anymore. There's no need to waste any more resources. Just pray for the spiritual gifts and God will fill you in. Um, he himself was prayed over by his students that received the gift, and he received the gift as well, apparently. But he was a classic restorationist. Restorationist or restoration, re- restorationism are people in the charismatic movement who believe that God restored the gifts. 
like brought them back. Brought them back. Yeah, okay. they they did believe they were lost through time. They believed that they ended with the apostles, but they apparently returned. So Charles Fox Parham, the the the, I guess you can say the father of the Pentecostal movement, truly. And we'll get to why he's. I don't I don't call him the father because there's actually a bigger backstory to that. But he didn't believe in the continuationist view. He believed in the re, the restoration view that God restored them because prior to this, there's very little talk about it. Um, in fact, there was almost no talk about it. Um, and then he basically went out and did all this stuff. Well, eventually his, his school was, the government came to, I mean, these guys were, they were, these guys were con men. They really were all these Pentecostal leaders back then, or at least prior to the Pentecostal movement, all these leaders were, uh, con men. They really were. The school got shut down for some weird violation of something. So then he went to Texas and he was teaching in Texas. And I think it was like 1906 or 1905 or something like that. There was a gentleman there, uh, William J. Seymour. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, uh, he was an African American gentleman that was invited there. Uh, um, he was invited there, but I forgot by who, but essentially he came here to listen to this new movement, this new wave of Christianity or something. So he went there, but he was an African-American. And back then there was a Jim, Jim Crow laws, which were very racist. It was very, everything was segregation, very blocked off. And especially in the South in Texas, it was very different. So anyway, he went there, he had to sit outside the room. He was there for only a month. And Charles Fox Parham was like teaching. He was having like a, a year long seminary or something weird like that. Um, and we're not even going to get into his, his doctrine because he was way off bat. But uh, William J. Seymour listened to this, took the teaching in. He was there for only like, I think, a month. And then eventually the nanny of Charles Fax Parham said she was helping lead some movement in San Francisco. And with Charles Fox Parham's blessing, she went to San Francisco and she invited William J. Seymour with herself. So this bl- black preacher basically went with her, or African-American or whatever you want to call it. They went, he went there with her to a, a place in Azusa Street, um, San Francisco Azusa Street, I think it was. It was. I'm not sure the breakdown. I just know the name of the street, Azusa Street. And they called it the Azusa Street Revival. So Azusa Street Revival. And this was 1907, I believe, when this started. And this is where the Pentecostal movement broke out. And this is why people called it the Pentecostal movement, because it was, the Pente- it was basically, they called it as if the 120 in the room in the book of Acts chapter 2, it refers to the 120 of the room. They received the fire and everything. They say this is where it all started. Well, it apparently started with Charles Fox Parham at a school in Topeka, Kansas in 1901 or whatever. The funny thing is, in 1901, when it happened, Charles Fox Parham said this must be the hand of God because they had 120 people in the room with them when this happened, supposedly. The exact number as the apostles did uh, during the chapter 2 book of Acts. Wow. Here's the crazy part behind all this. Let's just say... I guess let's just finish the, the, the mm-hmm. Azusa Street. This goes on for a little bit. And this is what Pentecostals will never talk about, by the way. Classic Pentecostals will never talk about this because it's, it's embarrassing to them. But Charles uh, William J. Seymour was leading this, and he realized that, I mean, there was barking at night. They were talking, they were claiming like the, the, the Shekinah glory was coming down. Wait, you know. barking? Do you, like, well, people were barking or like it was uh, dogs barking? No, people were barking. So well, I, okay. I guess well, let's, let's just go to what the classic Pentecostals will say today. They'll say, oh, the historical ones. They'll say, well, you know, there was all this amazing stuff. People's hands were regrowing. Eyes were coming back up. Um, you know, people with messed up jaws, their jaw would line up, all this stuff, right? They would, they would talk about all this, you know, amazing, miraculous, everything. Historically, there's no evidence for any of this, right? In fact, if you look through history, if you actually look at historical documents that talk about these type of things, right? Mm-hmm. This event specifically was so strange. It was so bizarre. People would be barking. 
Uh, you know what we see today about the whole fire tunnel thing? Yeah. They had they had something similar there. It was really strange. People would roll on the floor. Really weird behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. To the point where the people at night couldn't even sleep because these revivals would go on throughout the night. It was just really strange behavior. They would call the police on multiple occasions. What does this remind us of? First Corinthian church where it says, you remember? Apostle Paul talks, talks about everything be done in orderly fashion, mm-hmm. orderly wor- worship. He talks against, he says, if you if you act in this way, if you all speak in tongues, somebody comes in, he'll think you're all drunk with wine. Yeah. That very thing they were doing, that very thing that Apostle Paul talked against, they were doing. If you actually look at the historical documents, you know, newspapers that talked about this type of stuff, they were pointing out that William J. Seymour would literally open the Bible, read one verse out of context, and just have this huge 30-minute sermon on it and just scream like like we hear the the televangelists today same thing these guys were the godfathers of the televangelism they would read one verse out of context and have this huge seminar or not seminar but this huge revival camp meeting thing that's what was going on there every single night what classic pentecostals won't talk about as well is the fact that they call charles fax parham the father of the pentecostal movement that was what sparked the pentecostal movement throughout the world 1907 azusa street revival well William J. Seymour actually started doubting what was going on. Something they, It seemed way too ecstatic, way too weird, right? Mm-hmm. But all these, con, these miracles, were we can't confirm them today because we have no evidence of anything. We just have complaints, and the news would report on the complaints, right? They were trying to shut them down. It was really strange behavior from Christians. William J. Seymour panicked. He reached out to Charles Fox Parham, who was in Texas at the time, I believe. Charles Fox Parham came out saw what was going on, and these were his words. This is not of God. Those were his words. Mind you, he himself was a false teacher, but he said, this is not of God. Went up the street, started his own revival, which he was known for doing. That backfired, and then he left. Years later, you know, they shut down the Azusa Street revival thing. They shut all that stuff down. Well, it was too late. The damage was done because a lot of Christians would come in from all over the states to learn about this new ecstatic whatever it was. And the daughter of Varanayev, Dmitry Varanayev, I believe his name was, the guy who brought the Pentecostal movement to the to the Slavic people. That's where history kind of cuts out for us. This is where my studies have kind of ended because I can't find any solid documentation on it. But I'm sure if I dug hard enough, I can find something. But essentially, I believe it was Varanayev's daughter. She received, So some young people from New York or something came down there. They came back to New York to spread this whatever it was. Varanayev's daughter received the baptism of the tongues or whatever. And she, um, he being a Baptist preacher, mm. and I think he was a senior pastor of some Baptist church or something in New York or whatever it was, or a pastor of some sort. And she basically was able to convince him somehow. And he supposedly received the blessing as well. And their church converted from a Baptist church to a Pentecostal church. And all of a sudden these prophets sprung up. And one of the prophets said, we have to go back to Russia with this God, or thus says the Lord, we have to go back to Russia with this or whatever. And apparently, Varanayev said, he also prophesied to that prophet and said, well, God said that I'm only going to go if you're going to go or something. And so they all went. And uh, uh, sad to say, many of them passed away there. I think only Varanayev's wife made it back out of all the original people that went there. They found her in the 1960s. He was put in a gulag. I believe he died there, uh, Dmitry Varanayev or something, or the dogs, or they sent out dogs after him or something really sad. Um, which is unfortunate. We, we're not downplaying the, yeah. the martyrdom is never, never a good thing uh, in terms of uh, to fellow believers. Yeah. Nonetheless, um, that's how it spread to the Slavic community. At that point, it kind of shuts off for me. I think he went in like the, 
1917 or something came to the came back to the Russian. I think it was 1917 or 1915 or whatever. And that's when the revolution started with Lenin and all that stuff. 1917 is when that started. And so I, I don't remember the exact dates, but I remember that he came at like uh, a very interesting time when he was able to preach up to like the 1930s. And then the war started and, and that's when things really, really, really got, became difficult for him. But that is the first wave. But one thing people, that's, that's, there's a lot of contradiction, a lot of really concerning events happening in that time, right? That led to the Pentecostal movement. But one thing no one will ever talk about, and they're afraid to bring up, is there was a gentleman by the name of Frank Sanford and Alexander Dowie. Sorry, there's two gentlemen. Alexander Dowie was a known con man. He was a very well-known con man. Uh, the late 1800s, he was operating in a place he called Zion City. And uh, he was a cult leader, a hardcore cult leader. There's another gentleman all the way up in Massachusetts way up in the very corner of the U.S., his name was Frank Sanford. And Frank Sanford was a really well-known cult leader as well. And he had his, I forgot the name of his school. Uh, I forgot the name of it. But he had his school as well, this building, that Charles, Charles Fox Parham modeled his Bethel Bible School after this gentleman, this Frank Sanford's school. Frank Sanford was a known um, cult leader. He was a heretic, a hardcore heretic. He believed he was, him and Alexander Dowie would argue via mail who was Prophet Elijah reincarnated? Both of them would argue. And uh, Alexander Dowie was on the news. When I say on the news, not on the air, but essentially on mail because they had no no air. Obviously, it was all mail or it was all uh, newspaper. He was in the newspapers all the time. Something happened. A member of their movement died. Someone was starved because they were forcing fasts on people. Just absolute heresy. Mm. Frank Sanford apparently did... Um, his whole he had a large building that the people that joined paid for and everything but they couldn't work to make money so he would make them fast for two three days at a time even newborns newborn babies they would die i mean it was very sad eventually he got caught eventually but frank sanford the year 1900 january 1st apparently had 120 people in some upper room and they apparently received the gift of the holy spirit supposedly he put it in the news newspaper somehow charles fox parm got a hold of it but it wasn't as popular because where he was, it wasn't exactly a populated area or something. So it never took off. But Charles Fox Parham traveled there, left his students with that, that, that request so they can study the spiritual gifts. Mm -hmm. He came all the way up to Massachusetts or wherever it was, way up the northeast corner of the U.S. Maine. It was Maine. That's right. It was Maine. He went up all the way up to Maine to visit Frank Sanford and to study under him. To get, and he actually taught a couple of classes at his school, funny enough, to gain the knowledge of the spiritual gift. But when he came back in 1901, Charles Fox Parham was much more popular. So when he put it in the news or the newspapers, it blew up. Whereas Frank Sanford, it didn't. Plus, he was a known cult leader and all that stuff. Charles Fox Parham wasn't known yet that well in terms of like as a, as a heretic. But his event took off much faster, much bigger. So he became the father of the Pentecostal movement. He wasn't the father. This cult leader was Frank Sanford, technically. But if you want to, if you want to give him fair, let's just say he's the grandfather. Charles Fox Parham, Parham is the father of the movement. So, this is this is the charismatic movement. This is where it's the roots come from. The restorationist guys, the continuationist guys know this stuff. The more conservative charismatics, mm -hmm. which we fall under, by yeah, the way, because there is there is definitely a more conservative, yeah, like, Pentecostal. Charismatic, essentially. Yeah, and so we are, we are in, when I say conservative, I'm, talk, I'm not talking about wearing the kasinki or the head coverings. No, I'm talking about conservative in terms of theology. The more conservative or the more properly lined up theolog theological people in terms of this movement that are still charismatic, those we call continuationists. 
Restorationists are those who believe that God restored the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The father of this movement was Charles Fox Parham, supposedly. He believed in restorationism. In fact, he said that what was going on during the Azusa revival was not of God because he believed it was actual languages, not noises or not, you know, not, he, not gibberish. He actually believed it was actual languages, even though he was disproven by an actual linguist who visited Agnes Osman and confirmed that his first student that received the gifts, yeah. that was not Chinese. Because he was a Chinese-speaking person himself. Like, quickly to put it in, like, it really was language. Like, as in, if you, we lo literally look in Scripture, the people could actually understand what they were saying. So yeah. it's like, that's, yeah, that's a big thing to kind of, like, bring up, because it's like, you can't, it's not just any, any, like, like, I guess, sort of, like, sound that is, essentially, if you're going by biblical, um, speaking in tongues, that's in different languages. For, so sure. for sure, it is actual. Yeah. It is for sure languages. I mean, Acts chapter two, we see fourteen or six. I think it's fourteen actual groups of people that understood. But what's funny, you'll notice they're all Jews, or groups of Jews, and we'll get into we'll get into the the actual tongues, uh, the actual what tongues meant and what it was meant for. You know, what was speaking in tongues and what it meant for. We'll get into that in a later episode. Well, very detailed, as detailed as possible, mm -hmm. so people understand what it was meant for biblically. Uh, not what people tell us it's for. But anyway, that is classic, classic Pentecostalism. Restorationist or charismatic restorationist, they believe in the restoration. That was Charles Fox Parham, you know, the father of the Pentecostal movement, William J. Seymour, those guys. They believe in the restoration of God's gifts. Even the cult leaders like Frank Sanford and Alexander Dowie believed in the restoration of the, spirit, the, the tongues and the prophecy because it wasn't a common thing. No one ever saw it around. So they believe it truly ended like the 99% of the church, right? Mm -hmm. That's first wave. Classic Pentecostalism. And Varanayev took that teaching and brought it to, to Russia. And they kind of got mixed with Baptist theology. So we have like a hybrid, like pseudo-proper doctrine, like in terms of like long-term. Pseudo-proper doctrine with charismatic roots. So it's not uncommon to see a lot of word of faith, uh, which is not biblical by any means you know declaring you know you no know, that's not biblical by any means you don't declare anything you know um word of faith uh new age doctrine where everything's love it's all love there's no solid truth it's all you know subjective you know it's all my yeah. perspective what does that mean to you that's not biblical by any means as well there's no absolute truths which is anti-biblical so new age um um uh, sorry word of faith uh, we have over-conservative. We actually have over-conservative, where they become legalists. Mm -hmm. Legalism is not biblical either. Yeah, it's it's biblical, know. but not in a good way, yeah. which we're very familiar with. Legalism oh, is, yeah. that's that's kind of what tradition, why we, we have truth versus or truth against tradition. Yes. The tradition portion is that legalism that we're talking about. It's become so ingrained in our society, Slavic mentality, that it becomes part of our nature, when in all reality, if you look at Scripture, Scripture, it actually denounces these things or doesn't even bring these up at all. But yet we treat them like they're, they sanctify us or they make us holy. But in all reality, they have no merit or no ground. And sometimes we use that to kind of like prove to ourselves that we're different or like, you know, that because like we have that traditional thing, we think that that's either one, something that might save us or we think that that's one thing that kind of like sets us apart. Then we begin to use it as like a, I guess you could say religious like milestone sort of thing, as in like something that we look back to. Yeah, which yeah. is not a good thing. 
Yeah, I've heard this my whole life growing up, that what makes us different from all the other denominations is we have a more clear understanding of the Holy Spirit. Or we, we know this because of this. Or we have confirmation in our salvation because we speak in tongues, which is not a biblical teaching whatsoever. Sure. So that being said, um, the second wave, and it sounds like we're only probably going to get through the three waves in this episode, but the second wave is more of an... Um, this is kind of interesting. So in the... And we can probably do just a general church episode, like church history episode, because that's it's super interesting to see how the world affected the church and their doctrine and teachings. In oh, fact, yeah. we can see that in today's world very heavily. You know, we have, um, uh, what's it called? We have the uh, not um, postmodernism. Post mm-hmm. postmodernism is, is is what's affecting the church today, and postmodernism is there is no absolutes whatsoever, and it's very degrading in terms of truth. Modernism was the late 1900s, or sorry, the yeah late 1900s or mid 1900s going up, and then liberalism was late 1800s, and it's kind of funny because if you look at all these heretics, liberalism, I'm not talking about political liberalism, but I'm talking about liberalism in terms of a, as a, as, a, as a thought, as a philosophy, uh, was very uh, affected the church. In fact, that's what made these guys think they were Prophet Elijah reincarnated because liberalism teaches that okay. Um, um, uh, uh, you know, like I said earlier, if you read scripture about David and Goliath, right? Okay, so David and Goliath is it's not, okay, let's just say Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is not a real story. It's trying to explain how you have a, a sea of problems, right? And God's, God's blessing to you is like a boat that carries you across the floods of troubles. That's called liberalism. You, you, you basically, it's essentially whatever you want it to mean, it, it, but it's not absolutely true in a sense that it's not literal. It's very, it's free to interpretation. Mm-hmm. All of scripture is. And that really affected the early to mid 1900s or late 1800s, sorry. That really affected that, that time, which bled into the 1900s. A lot of theological schools were affected with this until the late 1960s. It was very sad. But you see Alexander Dowie, Frank Sanford, these guys thought they were Prophet Elijah and reincarnated because all of scripture is basically whatever you want it to mean. Well, if that's the case, that means why, why, why can't I be Prophet Moses? You know, uh, I think Alexander Dowie at one point said, I'm Prophet Elijah, and his right-hand man was Moses, reincarnated. Like, he went to that level. My point is, or what we're trying to get is, these philosophical or these kind of social views of just kind of schools of thought or just thought process in general, they affected theology too, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. Instead of us holding on to absolute truth, like the Bible says, we let other influences come in and change us. Well, the early 1900s, we bumped into Darwinism, which was modernism, the modern era. We hit the modern era. That's what led to the revolution or a big part of it, Marxism and everything. This is all the modern era. And at this point, we're getting to philosophy, which is a very, very rich topic. But modernism taught that if it's observable, it's true. And since we can't observe, no one has ever been resurrected from the dead. Therefore, Christ could have never come from the dead. Therefore, it's false, right? So this that's what modernism is. And so we have our church fathers, I want to say today's world. I'm talking about the reformed guys that are truly fighting for the truth. You know, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, you know, these, 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 Steve Lawson. These guys are legends in our day. They were affected when they just got into ministry. They were hit by modernism. So they were fighting against atheism. Today, atheism is not that scary anymore. Ten years ago, it was like, whoa, whoa, what if what if Darwinism destroys the church? Fifteen years ago, what if Darwinism really ruins the church? Whatever, you know, we always have these back thoughts. Yeah. But in today's world, we're not afraid of atheists at all anymore, because postmodernism destroyed atheism. Because atheism fell back on the idea, and it's funny. You actually look at atheism now; it's super weak. It's super. Um, 
uh, demasculine, or it's, it's, or it's uh, what's that word I'm looking for? Where it's like unmasculine. It's, it's been rem- the strength has been removed from it. There's just a shell left. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying atheism isn't strong. What I'm saying is atheism. The ideas have their merit has been ripped away. Like feminism, right? Just just kind of a side note. Yeah. Feminism was a big deal a couple years back, right? Really big deal. Well, if now with all this new age stuff that's coming out, feminism has lost its spark. Black Lives Matter has literally ruined feminism. That's true. You know, this new age, this new... Sorry, not Black Lives Matter. I'm sorry. The LGBTQ, uh, which was really yes, pushed yes, by... Okay. Yeah, that absolutely obliterated feminism. So now, and, and now once that, when you get rid of the feminism, now we have femininity. I don't know if you heard of that before. It's a wonder, it's wonderful. It's really cool. Femininity versus feminism. There was this really interesting talk with this lady who, anyway, my point is now females are starting to understand that females have an absolutely undeniable position or place in society that cannot be filled with a man, right? Mm-hmm. So femininity stood up where now fem- females are trying to become more feminine. They're trying to, and it's, it's really interesting when you remove that, that contrast is there when you destroy the overarching argument. Mm-hmm. Well, LGBTQ or whatever, that basically has, um, it has removed the feminism aspect as well. So postmodernism obliterated moder- modernism for the most part. We're seeing the decay of modernism. So Darwinism, today there's a gentleman, gentleman by the name of Stephen Meyer. He's a, a gentleman who became a Christian, but he studies, uh, you know, he's a philosopher himself and he studies, you know, um, molecular biology and he understands genetics very well. And he has wonderful books out there that are really, really interesting for any believer to read. But he basically disproves Darwinism very heavily. Even Darwin came in and said, obviously there's holes in my theory. I'm sure someone will figure it out. Well, Stephen Meyer proves that the further we go into technology, the further we see, we realize that there's more and more of a need of a creator because the chances of an impossibility, that's a necessity for life to exist. An impossibility is necessary for life to exist. That's literally contradictory to modernism. So modernism falls to pieces. Well, postmodernism actually says, okay, well, to resolve this issue, there is no truth. So it's almost like society or the world is trying to say anything but Christianity, anything but absolute truth. Now, now look at the gospel. The gospel says what? Absolutely rock hard, strong, objective truth. You are a sinner. You were born in sin. And you will burn in hell by the wrath of God. You will burn by the wrath of God himself. That is the gospel message. It's strong, solid truth. There's no wavering. There's no twisting. There's no wavering out of it. There's no trying to like reinterpret it, right? That's what the gospel message is. Well, if you approach it from a societal point of view, it really infects it. We try to, you know what? Hold up. Noah's Ark is kind of an impossibility because of modernism, right? If you look at the way rain falls, it's impossible for it to fill the earth because that would leave a lot of physical evidence and therefore we don't see it. So then Noah's Ark isn't real, but the rest of the Bible is real. Then at what point do you start taking the scripture seriously? See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So... That's what modernism taught. Postmodernism says there is no truth at all, no absolute truth whatsoever. That's what our generation will be dealing with for the next 50 years. And, and it, it, that makes it so hard to even, like, to even have, like, I would say faith, but also to have a re- assurance, you know, because now there's no absolute truth. So it's like everybody has their own truth. And that literally, if that starts to get a big, like, hold, like, in someone's, like, younger age— like younger years, then it kind of like begins to disassemble any sort of like solid like foundation. So it's really interesting because it's almost like they take a solid like the Bible talks about having a rock, right? Like house built upon a rock. Yeah. And this is literally taking that rock and breaking it down into a sand so that you have no solid foundation. And so it's like if you just like think about it, like, I mean, Satan finds like ways to kind of like 
to his main goal is to have us deceived and not believe in the truth. So yeah. it's like because the truth will set you free. He's he's a roaring lion looking who he can you know yeah, looking devour. to destroy to devour and destroy. Yeah. It's a hundred percent. I agree so with you, and I believe his his tools are a lot more complex than we th- we give him way too little credit in terms of how he approaches things. However, as long as we look to Christ and Scripture, and so here's the funny mm-hmm. part. Now, if you go back to emotions, let's go back to legalism. Let's go back to New Age, or let's go back to whatever thought process. Christian thought process that we had before. My feelings tell me, I believe he's real because in my personal experience, that's true. Muslims have a lot of personal experiences too. That doesn't make the religion true. The only thing that we have that's objective, that's solid, that has no wavering, no changing is scripture. Scripture never changes. It's Mm -hmm. the same. You can reinterpret it all you want. That's fine. That's up to you. But the gospel message never changes and it's in scripture. So that is what we're talking about. That's that's, that's the whole point of this podcast. We're trying to get rid of the tradition aspect of things, or essentially the falsehoods that have we that we have around script or around the uh, around truth, and we want to expose the truth. We want to make it shine. That way, people can look on it and say, "Wow, if I get rid of the liberalism, or if I get rid of postmodernism, or modernism, or whatever, I'm left with this rock solid truth that." You can run against it all you want, and it'll smash you to pieces. You understand, Once you understand how powerful the gospel is, it makes sense why they say Christ is the cornerstone, right? If it falls on you or if you run into it hard enough, it'll destroy you, but it will never move. Christ is the, you know, he has brought, he brings the sword to divide. It literally divides people's hearts, not because of emotion, not because of feelings, because of the fact that it's true. Because the truth will set you free. Exactly. It is the only power on earth to save. And so th- this is the point we're talking about. This is what we're trying to get across, that these different movements, these, these the charismatic movement or whatever, the emphasis on the wrong thing can sh- shipwreck people's faith. It can truly dilute you. Nowhere, nowhere do you see apostles relying on their emotions for salvation or their personal experiences. They're relying on God himself. And we live in the age of scripture, which we'll get into in a little bit. But the second wave was very, very specific in the fact that it fought with these philosophies, right? The first wave was, yes, it was affected by by liberalism, but the first wave was just misinterpretation of scripture for personal benefit. The second wave of the charismatic movement, which is the overarching topic we're talking about, the second wave is called the charismatic renewal. 1960s, the charismatic renewal. And then we have the Vineyard Church. We have Lonnie Frisbee. Uh, the hippie movement, basically, was it was very, you know, the beach bums, you know, the beach kids, those guys. Yeah. That had a huge influence on the church. Wow. And it was more like, God loves you. It was very hippie kind of affected. Yeah. God loves you. You're loved. And so we have Vineyard Church, Four Square Church. We have these different churches that are very emphasizing, and I'm not saying Foursquare is bad today. No, I'm just saying that these churches came from this or they were affected by it and they were the biggest catalyst to push it forward. I don't think the, the second wave was as bad as what they taught. I think the problem they had was they led to the third wave. So the second wave was Lonnie Frisbee. Oral Roberts had a huge effect on it as well, but he was he was technically first wave, but he had a huge effect on it. He was a televangelist, very, very, very corrupt and false preacher. But the second wave was Lonnie Frisbee and all these new, newer age gentlemen that brought in love, love. Forget all the politics. Forget about the solid truth. God loves you. And um, it led to some very interesting characters that are just now passing away or disappearing. And it led to people like Kenneth Copeland, who was a student of Oral Roberts. He's kind of like his soul student or whatever you want to call it. Um, and as we probably know, it's a word of faith yeah. came from that. 
Well, Word of Faith was from Second Movement. That's one of the bad, worst things it developed. And there's it's the 1960s, around that era. And the third wave. This is where we bump into the, um, we call it the American charismatic. You know, when they say, Harismate, you know, the charismatics, that's referring to the third wave. The third wave is the charismatic evangelicals. This is where evangelicalism or the understanding of the evangelon or the evangelon, the actual, the gospels, essentially evangelicals are those who spread the gospel, just to simplify it, those who spread the gospel. That means people that are usually trained and understand a little bit more. That's where it mixed into the charismatic movement. Prior to this, it was a very feeling, I feel, this is my interpretation, this is what I think, very liberalistic in terms of mental, in terms of theology. Well, third wave theology actually came into the charismatic movement, and that's where we have people like, um, uh, what was his name? Oh, I forgot his name. He's the one who started the NAR, the New Apostolic Refor- uh, the the um, yeah New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, his I can't think of his name right now, but this gentleman. Um, C. Peter Wagner. C. Peter Wagner was the gentleman that, and there's another uh, another Kansas City prophet, I think, who started the movement. But the NAR, which we've heard of, which we see a lot today, we don't see them up front as much. We see the their fruits. We see it everywhere. Hillsong, Bethel music, those are elevation is affected by it as well. These guys are students, or they're part of the NAR. NAR is a New Apostolic Reformation. I want you to think about what that means. New Apostolic Reformation. They believe that God restored the apostolic seat of ministry again. Huh. Through a gentleman by the name of C. Peter Wagner, who, oh man, there's just so much craziness that goes in this movement. And we have people like um, Bill Johnson from Bethel Church. We have some really, really interesting um, fire tunnel, you know, uh, being drunk in the spirit, uh, barking like a dog. Wait, being drunk in the spirit, is this something people actually say? Oh, no, they, they act drunk. They act drunk on stage. Ah, uh, no. Whoa. They act wasted. I'm not even, I'm dead serious. When I say that, I say that sad. I'm very sad about it. They sit, they stand on stage. Instead of preach anything, they act drunk and they say, I'm drunk on the glory of God. And they act drunk. The more drunk you are, the more full you are of the spirit. What? Drunkenness so it's, throughout the entire Bible, drunkenness is never a good thing. Yeah, and it's I'm, blatantly contradictory to that. Yeah, and here's the crazy part. Their mentality is this is how crazy it gets to the point where it's so egregiously false that they're saying that God fulfills your lusts, basically. And drunkenness is one of those lusts, basically. Essentially that's what they're trying to say. They're implying that God his drunken glory. Basically, he's letting you be drunk on the spirit. Whoa. There's even some that take it so far to say they're they're taking a hit of baby Jesus, like a like a bong or whatever. They're getting they're taking hits of baby Jesus. But it's my 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 mind right now is like blown up because it's like, you know, when the fruits of the Holy Spirit, like the fruits of the Spirit, are like you know self control. That's a big one. And it's like when you're drunk, you don't have self control. Doesn't doesn't Apostle Paul say that you know um, adulterers and and um, idolaters and drunks yes. will not inherit the kingdom of God, yep. right? But their point of view is, the Holy Spirit is making me drunk. You know, this is the power of the Holy Spirit, right? You know, the knocking down people, that's that's this, and AR stuff. The second wave had some of it. The televangelists really used this to their to their advantage to, get, to use people to their benefit. But specifically, uh, the third wave, what they're known for is, is this whole, it's a very um, 
it surrounds the person. You know, God steps down a little bit, man steps up. The little God's doctrine, by the way, comes from, I don't say it comes from the third wave, but it definitely was pushed further by the, the, the third wave. It's where little God's doctrine means, essentially what they're applying is you're a little God, little G. That, you know, um, I think, what's his name? Um, Creflo Dollar actually taught this. He was the more, he's the more clear teacher on this, where he says that, you know, if horses get together, they make horses. If cats get together, they make cats and so on. When the Godhead gets together, they make gods. And his thing was, you're, you're a god, little g. So that means you can declare, you can control the weather, uh, you can apparently walk on water if you had enough faith. It's all faith-centric, right? Faith becomes the object of faith in the, the Word of Faith movement. And the NAR takes that, and they're not Word of Faith, but they're very similar. There's a lot of crossovers, a lot of them. Well, it's, that's interesting because it's like, let's say me and you, right? We're like working on something. You want a certain outcome, I want a different outcome. If we're both like word of faith and we're both like trying to say like let's just say for i'm using like a random example but it's like where we planted a tree and i'm like i don't want that tree to grow you're like i do want that tree to grow and it's like i've heard this example of like um two two christian schools are competing against each other in a football game both of them are praying they're like we're gonna see who listens to us it's like no like who has the better football skills you know yeah it's like like you're praying they're praying it's like who's god's gonna listen to it's like that and so like the whole like kind of like the whole word of faith that's just like it contradicts all of scripture yeah I'm but, like, but that's wow. that's because they take scripture out of context and again this all flows from bad theology this all flows from um they have a low view of the sovereignty of god they have a very low view of the authority of scripture um and they really want to elevate the like i said they're charismatic remember the emphasis like i said the definition of charismatic is they believe in the apostolic gifts are active today and they and the need to to sought them out or to seek them out that's kind of their, that's the emphasis for a charismatic. That's what mean, what it means to be a charismatic. So, and you have to understand, by the way, all these waves of the charismatic movement, this bred, this bred Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism came from, came from these teachings, right? Pentecostalism, the classic Pentecostalism was wave number one. Kenneth Copeland is a Pentecostal. You know, Creflo Dollar is a Pentecostal. You know, we think that we're in the water and we're in this like pure little boat. The reality is we're not, or when I say we, I'm saying the Pentecostal, Pentecostal movement, the Slavic Pentecostal movement. We're surrounded by tons of, of heresy everywhere. It's, it's basically, that's this this movement specifically breeds all types of heresy. I'm not saying the, the Protestant movement is clean. You know, I just bumped into a Protestant the other day. I, myself being a Protestant myself, bumped into a Protestant the other day that doesn't read scripture at all. And he doesn't remember any of the creeds or anything. And I had a really good talk with him, but the the thing was, he's a Protestant, so he has a good under he has a good foundation, a good starting point. So from there, I was able to kind of, you know, a, a basically spark that joy for Scripture again to some degree. At least I can see in his face, he seemed to take it. He he responded very positively, but in order to talk to a Pentecostal or a Baptist about these type of things, I have to first dismantle not just myself, but you yourself or anyone who wants to get down to the truth. You have to first dismantle this narrative of the spiritual gifts or or the narrative behind the Pente sorry the Pentecostal movement to get a better understanding of or to, to be able to show the truth, right? So it's really difficult to um, it's very difficult to kind of wrap your mind around what's actually happening at first. It really is. I mean for me it, it blew my mind when I learned about all this stuff. My mind was just I, I didn't accept it at first. I thought this is all just some crazy, really weird nightmare I'm going through, right? It took a while, it took a couple of months to be able to regurgitate or essentially to process this information. But what I'm trying to say is these three waves, this is Pentecostalism. 
This is charismatic Baptists or Methodists. This is the same thing. Um, so this is why I want to go through the history a little bit and kind of explain these characters like Charles Fox Parham, you know, Frank Sanford, Alexander Dowie. I didn't really go into Dowie, but Dowie was a straight-up cult leader, straight-up cult leader. I mean, this guy was hardcore. I mean, his daughter, he taught some really weird things. For example, uh, don't go to a doctor. That means you have lack of faith, right? And his doctor apparently, or his doctor, his daughter, she they used to have like these torch curling irons where they would put like gas inside of them and it would, it would heat up on the inside. Mm -hmm. Well, it apparently failed. The gas fell on her and it lit her on fire and she was dying of burns. Well, in his view, if you... Any form of makeup or any form of beauty or any, you know, for females, that was considered sin, right? Because legalism and you can name any heresy was part of him. And he let her die. He just stared at her and said, you, you get what you deserve and walked away. And his daughter died in burning pain. That's Alexander Dowie. Whoa. Yeah. Frank Sanford, newborns were starving. And his new, I'm talking about newborn, three-day-year-old, four-day-year-old, they would have three-day fasts. Those children would die. He got he he purchased two large yachts with the money of the people that were a part of his cult. Funny enough, Frank Sanford, by the way, the actual father, in my opinion, of the Pentecostal movement. He bought these two large boats, put everyone inside of it, and he would grow. He was he was going to do this huge missionary trip after they received the gift of tongues. By the way, it was a huge failure, but he would he got these two large boats. They would fast. They wouldn't eat for like seven days straight. They would get a cracker and a couple of gulps of water. That's what the men would eat apparently, and he would have two meals a day or some ridiculous. I didn't do the research myself. I've listened to two um, Protestants and two Lutherans that talked about this, but I never researched it myself personally, but this doesn't, I know that he was eventually convicted of this stuff, funny enough. And that was part of the conviction was the fact that he, um, one, one boat crashed. He put everyone else on one boat. He would eat fine, but everyone else would starve. And uh, I think a seven-year-old boy died and they threw him overboard. And uh, that's what eventually got him convicted. And uh, he went in prison. And he, I think he died in prison or he just got out and died. These people are what led to the Pentecostal movement. In fact, I can't find even one. I'm not really looking for um, any good preachers or teachers in the Pentecostal movement um, because their their core doctrines and theology is a little bit off to me. But um, as far as I can see, I cannot find one name that stands out as a good, wholehearted, deep theologian from the Pentecostal movement in history. Today, it's a little bit different. We have Wayne Grudem, Sam Storms. Uh, we have really good the theologians. That, uh, that are around today. I mean, Wayne Grudem, I'm, you know, Systematic Theology. He wrote the book on Systematic Theology, and it's one of the most hottest-selling Systematic Theology books. It is the most hottest-selling Systematic Theology book there is. But, uh, and which I'm, by the funny enough, reading, or going to be reading very soon. But that's beside the point. What I'm saying is back then, there was very little theology in this movement. And so, how do you know what's objective truth? I mean, no one was actually criticizing these people because the, the, the understanding of Scripture is very little to begin with. So um, that's kind of that's kind of the point of today's today's episode to kind of go through the history, and then we'll go into I think next episode we're going to talk about continuationism, where our church stands on that, uh, what is a cessationist, um, and then we're going to go into things like prophecy, tongues, uh, but I think we're going to go into really deep detail with that. Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, yeah, these things are things that we do need to get into detail um, about and like take it slow. Um, and also guys, everything that is, is being told, everything that you guys, you can hear, you hear all these people can be researched. All these people can be searched up. Nowadays we have the internet. So don't just take what you hear. And also another thing is, um, that I had to learn myself. Don't say, don't take something that you hear from a sermon or anywhere and just run with it. Do some research, actually study the word. 
or like at least go and like like talk about it like discuss it see if it's like if it ties in with scripture if it is true and i know i'm saying true but like to the extent of let you know but like really test it um check the context yeah the the, the, for any form of true the step one for hermeneutics check the context i mean one thing you'll find it's so unfortunate and i do this all the time in our church You'll listen to a sermon and it's on one verse or two verses, for example. If you read the context, you see it doesn't apply to, is to the Jews or uh, the actual context is talking about something absolutely different. I mean, sometimes even absolutely opposite of what's being preached, which is unfortunate. And I'm not sure why this happens, but it is our responsibility to study scripture in context properly using hermeneutics. Study hermeneutics is a wonderful thing. And Joey's right, for sure. Please. Don't trust what I say or what Joey says for face value. Look into it. If we talk about scripture, if we open scripture, open with us if you can. Um, we're not trying to fool anyone. We receive no benefit from any of this stuff except exposing any, the truth. Any, any, benefit. any benefit. In fact, it's we're actually <laughs> pouring coals on our head sometimes. Yes. But but it is for the for the kingdom of God, for his glory, you know, for you know, the solas, the five solas, you know? Yeah. You know, and the very last sola was what? For the glory of of God alone. That's what we do this for the glory of God. We we study this. We want to share the truth as much as we can for our brothers and sisters in the Slavic community. Yeah. Amen. And uh, yeah, we hope that um, this is something that gets you interested in wanting to do some more research or wanting to study. Um, our whole goal is to get you more rooted in Scripture, to go back to the Word, which is the truth, which is the one truth that we should always be sticking to and the one truth that we should continue going back to constantly. And uh, so. for the outro, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read uh, 2 Corinthians, one of my favorites, uh, chapter 13, um, verse, I'm going to just do 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.